Our scripture reading for this morning is found in the book of Hosea, which is among the 12 minor prophetic books. Um, and it's, it's not a minor book because it's insignificant, but it's minor because compared to the major prophetic books, it's shorter in volume. Um, and it's written by Hosea, the, the prophet himself. And I'll be reading from chapter 1, and we're going to read all the way to chapter 2, verse 1. Hosea chapter 1, all the way to chapter 2, verse 1. And so starting from chapter 1, people of God, hear now God's holy word. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu, for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive, to forgive them all at, them at all. And I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people. It shall be said to them, children of the living God and the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head and they shall go up from the land for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And then chapter two, verse one, say to your brothers, you are my people and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Thus far, the reading of God's word, may he bless it. To us. It doesn't take long when reading the opening verses of Hosea chapter 1 till our eyebrows suddenly raise, doesn't it? Because we see there in the opening verses a marriage that begins with heartbreak rather than happiness, a marriage that begins with misery rather than peace and joy. Because universally, when we think of the life of newlyweds or Whenever we attend weddings of friends and, and family, we never wish for marriages to fail, right? We want them to succeed and to begin their new journey as a happily married couple and to start a happy family. But it's in chapter 1 where we're introduced to a man named Hosea, followed by a woman whom the Lord commanded him to marry, a woman named Gomer. And Hosea was called by the Lord to be a prophet in the latter half of the 8th century B.C. in the northern kingdom. 
And he was called to minister in a period of Israel's history where the Israelites' wickedness and betrayal to their covenant lord to the land became so great and so worse that it eventually led to their downfall and exile to the Assyrians in 722 B.C. This was God's judgment to Israel for their unfaithfulness. And the prophet Hosea would be among the prophets who would prophesy his judgment. But what's shocking is that the Lord commands him to do the undesirable, perhaps the unthinkable. Even before he speaks a prophetic word from the Lord, he must do one thing first, and that is he must first marry a wife of whoredom, a prostitute, a woman who is characterized by promiscuity, a woman of multiple sexual encounters and relationships. And so it's this woman by the name of Gomar that the Lord commands Hosea to marry, a wife of whoredom. But why this strange command? Well, first we must understand that God's thoughts and God's ways of revealing truth throughout redemptive history are sometimes mysterious and often beyond our comprehension. And we must understand that this mysterious command by God to marry a wife of whoredom has a divine purpose to reveal something about the spiritual unfaithfulness of Israel. But not only was it pronounced for God's people back then, it's also a message for us, isn't it? For all generations, so that our own spiritual sickness is exposed So that the reality of God's eternal judgment is made clear to us that if you refuse to turn from the idols of your heart, the idols of self, if you refuse to forsake the ways that are contrary to God's word, and ultimately if you reject the offer of grace in Christ alone, then you are left hopeless to suffer the justice of God. And why, beloved? Because God is a holy God. God is a righteous God, a jealous God who desires unwavering, faithful devotion from his covenant people. For that is the prophet's resounding judgment that alarms throughout the book. Yet, beloved, in light of that reality, as we'll see the story unfold in chapter 1, we'll see not only the bad news pronounced, but we'll also hear the good news, too. For even though judgment is amplified in his prophetic word and Even it's pronounced vividly in Hosea's marriage. God's people aren't left without a message of hope, a call to repentance. For the good news from God is always the hope of reconciliation, the hope of restoration and renewal, not only for Gomer or for Israel or for Judah, but it extends to all of us who desperately need the only one who can save us the only mediator and savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who redeems us and who renews us and who sanctifies us for his glory alone. And so that's why we want to think that our passage ultimately communicates really this main truth, this central truth, that since hope is revealed in Christ who is faithful and merciful to save his people, we are not left in judgment but are given His grace to live in faithful obedience to our covenant Lord. And so, beloved, He is our hope. It's in Christ whom we trust. 
And so how do we see this transition from judgment to, to hope unfold in our passage? Well, if you're taking notes, we can see this unfold when we consider three things. The occasion of unfaithfulness, the judgment of unfaithfulness, and finally, the hope of his faithfulness. The occasion of unfaithfulness, the judgment of unfaithfulness, and finally, the hope of his faithfulness. And so first, we see the occasion of unfaithfulness. And we see that there in verse 1, the word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. Now notice how in the opening of Hosea's book, the, the word of the Lord came to Hosea. And, and that's important. And why? Well, it's because it's vital for us to see the legitimacy of Hosea's calling as a prophet. And it's the statement that the word of the Lord came to him. And that's a signal we see really at the beginning of prophetic books like Joel or Micah or Zephaniah, especially when God had appointed individuals to this crucial prophetic task that the word, that the word of the Lord came to Hosea. And he's called to speak God's word to his people, right? It's not simply Hosea's opinion or Hosea's wishful thinking, even though God inspired him and uses his personality and style to communicate, but ultimately it's God's authoritative, holy and living word that he must say. And the word to Hosea came particularly at the height of Israel's unfaithfulness and idolatry in the northern kingdom approximately between 756 B.C. until their downfall and exile in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. And it's interesting to see there that Hosea mentions four kings from Judah belonging to the southern kingdom and one king from the north named Jeroboam. And so four kings from the south and one king from the north. And sometimes it's easy for us to gloss over these names because there's just so many kings to recall, right? And, and well, it's because of the tragic split of the kingdom after King Solomon, which really increased the number of kings in the north and in the south. But if you're still tracking with me, know that it's significant because Think of these names as markers of time in Israel's history, right? The, the same way we think about our nation's presidents, right? That whenever we hear their names like George W. Bush, what do you think of? 9-11, right? Or Franklin Roosevelt, we, we think of World War II. And so in the same way in our passage, uh, Jeroboam, son of Joash, was the 13th king in the north. And his name is not to be confused by the very first king in the north a century prior, which is his name is Jeroboam, son of Nabat. And so the first king and, and the second and the 13th king in the north, they, they have the same name. And that's why interpreters would identify the 13th king in Hosea's time as Jeroboam II, really to avoid the confusion. And so when Hosea appears toward the end of Jeroboam II's reign, it brings to our minds a significant turning point in Israel's history in the north, right? The same way we remember events attached to our presidents. Um, because under Jeroboam II's rule, the north has never been more fortified and 
more secure in comparison to the previous northern kings. I mean, God's favor was upon Israel in that era because he saw once again his people's affliction and, and suffering. And so God used Jeroboam II, Jeroboam II as a means to save Israel. For we read in 2 Kings chapter 14, 26 to 27, For the Lord saw that the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. So the Lord saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. And furthermore, we read that Jeroboam restored the borders of Israel. But notice from the outside, from the appearance, he seemed politically great, right? He seemed to be in control of his rule. But beloved, we need to ask ourselves, what is more important to God, right? Is it political greatness? Is it trusting in human success? Is it our confidence in self? Or is it the heart of faithfulness and loyalty to the one true God? It's the latter, isn't it? For we know that the Lord looks on the heart as opposed to what man looks on the outside. And so for the king, he must rule in true faithfulness, justice, and righteousness so that God's people would reflect that character. But tragically, like many of the kings before and after Jeroboam II, we read in 2 Kings that he still did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabad, which he made Israel to sin. And so again, in one sense, Israel seemed prosperous, right, and wealthy and politically great from the outside, but deep inside their hearts were far from the Lord, for they continued in their sin. And the northern kings that followed and Israel as a whole had progressed in wickedness and idolatry and plots of murder. It was really a mess. It was a complete betrayal to the Lord. And that's why Hosea pronounces, For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And it's also no surprise why Hosea didn't find the succeeding northern kings worth mentioning, but Rather, he mentioned the kings of Judah, the tribe by which there is still hope, the tribe by which a future messianic king would come to make all things right for his people. And that's ultimately fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? And so understand that this was the spiritual climate that Hosea had to face. This was the tragedy. And it would take the boldness to convey God's prophetic judgment as it's illustrated in Hosea's heartbreaking marriage. For this was the occasion of unfaithfulness. And so, beloved, after seeing the occasion of unfaithfulness, we now turn to see the judgment of unfaithfulness. And we'll see that judgment is revealed in two ways. First, through his marriage with Gomer in verse 2. And second, through his children that he fathers with Gomer in verses 4 to 9. And so first we see Hosea's marriage with Gomer. And I understand how for many of us, when we find this command by God to marry, um, this kind of marriage, is, it's ethically problematic, isn't it? Right? Especially when it's commanded by the Lord. But a way to solve this is that first we must understand that unfaithful marriages is not what God desires for marriage, right? 
Right? Marriage between a husband and, and a wife must be marked by faithfulness rather than unfaithfulness. That has been God's design for all marriages from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2.24. And even after sin entered the world, especially in the New Testament like Ephesians 5, where it shows the love between Christ and his church. And so to be clear, it's not a normative command or, or wise to marry someone who lives a sexually immoral lifestyle. And when we understand that principle, we can freely dive into the story knowing that God always has a divine purpose for this command, only for Hosea. And, and really, it's worth asking, you know, why Bible readers continue to be drawn to Hosea's ministry? Like, why? Well, I, I think it's because it's a marriage relationship that's out of the ordinary, right? It's, it's really profound because it illustrates such a depth of God's incomprehensible love and, and mercy despite every reason to walk away, right? Despite every reason to call it quits. And that's the beauty of our passage, beloved, because God who is holy and pure loves his unfaithful bride so much that he judges them so that they may realize their sin problem. And for us, too, that we may realize our own sin problem, our own guilt, our own hopelessness before being shown the cure. And it's like God telling Israel that when you look at Gomer and her children of whoredom, I need to expose you to the truth. And the truth is Gomer is, living, is a living reflection of your betrayal. Because I saved you from the house of slavery. I made a covenant with you even while you were still rebellious. I gave this land to thrive as a holy people, to freely worship the one true God and become a beacon of hope for the nations. But what did you do? You committed great whoredom in the land. You broke the covenant. And so you see, as God exposes Israel's sin through Gomer, he continues this revelation of judgment when she bears children in verses 4 to 9. And we see there that there are three children in the marriage. And so remember, God not only commands Hosea the kind of wife he'll marry, but she's going to bear children whom God will be the one to name, right? It's not the parents. For the names that God will give them is also a revelation of his judgment. The, the first son that God names is Jezreel, right? Followed by his daughter, whose name is No Mercy, and finally, his youngest son, whose name is Not My People. Jezreel, No Mercy, Not My People. Clearly, it's not the Bible names we want to name our children, isn't it? Right? Now, some interpreters are divided as to whether the last two children are fathered by Hosea. You know, some argue that they're illegitimate children from Gomer's illicit affairs, but Really, whatever position you take, the point is they came from Gomer, and, and God names them to convey judgment upon Israel. And in verse 4, we see the first son whom the Lord calls Jezreel, and he says there, For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. Now, Jezreel literally means God plants, and it's really a name of a location all too familiar with Israel in the northern kingdom. 
And, and Jezreel is described by one commentator as this beautiful, fertile valley between the mountain ranges of Samaria and, and Galilee. And it's also described to have this agricultural wealth and where it's this international trade route from Damascus to Egypt. And it's no wonder, um, it's no wonder why this valley was a prosperous area. But it's, but it's also the place where it brings dark memory. The place where there, is, there was bloodshed. And it's where the Lord commanded Jehu 80 years earlier in 2 Kings chapter 9-10 to 10, to annihilate the evil house of Ahab. Right? He commands every male bond or free in that house, including Jezebel, for killing the Lord's prophets. And so justice was served upon Ahab's house. And, and Jehu did well in God's eyes by ending Ahab's descendants. But tragically, as you know, when Jehu became king of Israel and he became powerful, how do you think King Jehu turned out? What do we usually see when the Israelite kings gain power? What do we see? Well, they, they fall into sin, don't they? They fall into the same sinful patterns as the kings before them. For we read in 2 Kings chapter, chapter 10, Jehu did not turn aside the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. And that's why Jehu and his house, which is essentially the rest of the house of Israel, the Lord said, I will punish the house of Jehu for their blood guilt. I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And then in verse 5, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. In other words, what the symbolism of the bow brings to mind is Israel's military strength, right? In which military strength of Israel is about to end. God pronounces that he will break it and that he will finally take it away by the Assyrian army. That's the judgment, beloved. And so you can imagine the first son of Hosea named Jezreel, he carries with him that message of doom. So as he walks through the towns, for he's like this walking billboard, a pronouncement, a pronouncement of judgment upon Israel. And just when you think Jezreel was the only pronouncement of judgment, we see in verse 6 that Gomer conceived again and bore a daughter. And her name is Hebrew is Lo Ruhama, which means no mercy. Or it can be translated no compassion or no love in which the Lord says, I will have no more mercy. You know, or if we translate it more woodenly, I will not again continue mercy, not again continue compassion, no love, no, no mercy, no nothing on the house of Israel to forgive them all. In other words, the Lord is saying, I'm done with you. I'm calling it quits. Sign the divorce papers. It's over. But beloved, notice in verse 7, we read a profound statement, don't we? The Lord says, but I will have mercy. Isn't that comforting? Doesn't it remind us of Ephesians chapter 2, 4, 5, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead. Isn't that amazing grace? 
But I, says in verse 7, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. In other words, God is saying, the apple of my eye is still the house of Judah. I'm not letting go of Judah because it's through the lion of Judah that the Lord Jesus Christ, by which I will make all things right to save all who are mine. And I don't need swords or horses or war. They're all worthless things because true strength and and, and true power to save will come from no one else except from me alone. For I am enough to save my people. You don't need to trust in anything else or in anyone else but in the Lord your God. Isn't that an amazing promise? It's that comforting revelation of hope fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ who was our king and God and if you play and that's if you place your trust in him amen but then finally perhaps the severest judgment among the three children is the third child and we see that in verse 9 the lord said call his name loami which means not my people and the reason why he calls him that is because he says for you are not my people And I am not your God. And so think about that. Not only is the Lord pronouncing Jezreel and that he will end the house of Israel. Not only is he pronouncing no mercy in which he will no longer love Israel. But he's pronouncing not my people as if they are total strangers now. As if I never knew you. You are not my people. I am not your God. Notice how God completely reverses his covenantal declaration of I will be your God and you shall be my people to now I am not your God and you are not my people. That is rock bottom, isn't it? That's the worst pronouncement that a person who rejects the Lord in their hearts can ever receive. Because on that last day when false hearts are, of men are revealed, they will cry, Lord, Lord. But what will Jesus say? Right? I never knew you. Depart from me. You were never my people. I was never your Lord. And it, it's a tragic pronouncement, isn't it? And yet after hearing the heavy blows of God's judgment upon Israel and hearing the consequences of their sin and whoredom in the land, God's people hear yet another pronouncement of hope. Right? This dramatic shift in the tone of God's word in our passage. And that's finally the hope of his faithfulness. And we see that hope, the good news, starting from verse 10 when we read, Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And we wonder, why suddenly this reversal? Why? Well, we have to understand that even though God's people failed the covenant established in Mount Sinai with the condition of blessing and and, and curse from the land, The Lord will never break his promise in that wonderful covenant. The the covenant of grace he made from the beginning in Genesis 3 and revealed again with Abraham. Because the promise that we see in verse 10, how the children of Israel will be like the sand of the sea. 
It's recalling a promise, really, that God gave with Abraham in Genesis 22, isn't it? Right? It says there, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And so you see the grace of God there? Do you see that even though we, like Israel, deserve God's judgment because of our sin and and the Lord promises He will change our hearts of those who are truly Israel? And it's not according to ethnicity, right? It's not according to, to skin color, but it's according to God's unbreakable covenant of grace for all people from every nation, from every tongue and tribe, both Jew and Gentile. And how is this covenant of grace fulfilled if it's too good to be true? That God can ever save and restore a sinner who lies, who cheats and who steals, who lusts, who are prideful, who are selfish, who hates neighbor? How can one who is dead in sin become alive and forsake sin? Well, the only solution, beloved, is the Lord himself, isn't it? For we read of the prophecy in verse 11 that the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and they shall appoint for themselves one head And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. And so you see the one head, the one ruler mentioned there is in fact a prophecy of the Messiah who came, our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because of him that God's people can ever be forgiven, justified, sanctified, and restored as one people of God through the one head, one mediator between God and man. And the place of Jezreel will no longer be that reminder of judgment, but it will be a reminder of God's grace. That the land as a pointer to that heavenly land of prosperity and goodness for God's people gathered to himself through the Lord Jesus Christ. So that in him the Lord gives us a new name. And what is that? You are my people. You have received mercy. And beloved, that's precisely the vivid picture of hope. The good news that Hosea portrays when he pursues and redeems Gomer later in chapter chapter 3 because of his unfailing love to extend mercy despite all her betrayal, despite all her unfaithfulness because that's exactly what God does for us in Jesus. Amen? And so beloved, may you be comforted in that hope. May you be encouraged in that promise. May you be empowered to be faithful as you fix your only hope in Jesus Christ. Amen. Let us pray. And I'll be praying from the words of John Calvin as he came to pray after meditating on this passage. Grant, Almighty God, that as we come not only, that as we have not only been redeemed from Babylonian exile, but have also emerged from hell itself. For when we were the children of wrath, you did freely adopt us. And when we were aliens, you did in your infinite goodness open to us the gate of thy kingdom, that we might be made your heirs through your Son. O grant that we may walk circumspectly before you and submit ourselves wholly to you and to thy Christ and not pretend to be his members, but really prove ourselves to be his body. And, and to be so governed by his spirit 
that you may at last gather us together into thy celestial kingdom, to which you daily invite us by the name, by the same Christ our Lord. Amen.